0: Welcome to The Big Idea, I'm Douglas Kerr, and this week we're talking about the philosopher Wittgenstein. Ludwig Wittgenstein, one of the most important philosophers of the 20th century, could also be called an anti-philosopher. He was described by his teacher and friend Bertrand Russell as, quote, the most perfect example I have ever known of genius, as traditionally conceived, passionate, profound, intense, and dominating, unquote. Wittgenstein was a notable eccentric who spent most of his career at Cambridge University but couldn't care less about what counted for others as academic or worldly success. He'd given away his enormous fortune and he published in his lifetime only one book, one article, one book review and a Children's Dictionary, so he wouldn't have got tenure in Hong Kong. His classic book, Philosophical Investigations, the fruit of his later intellectual labours, was not published till after his death. Wittgenstein wrestled all his life with the relation between language and the world. Famously, he says, the limits of my language mean the limits of my world. He came round to the view that most philosophical problems were problematic not because we don't understand the world, but because we're confused about language. His own language is often difficult, not because it's complex and technical, but because of its simplicity, propositions like this one, if a lion could talk, we could not understand him. So, to talk about Wittgenstein, I'm joined today by two scholars from the Chinese University of Hong Kong, Simon Haynes, Professor and Head of English, and Julian Lam, Associate Professor, also in the Department of English. So, Simon Haynes, could I start by asking you just to sketch for us something about Ludwig Wittgenstein's
1: life? Sure. Um, It's interesting that Wittgenstein is remembered almost as much for his life as for his work. His life was was unusual and quite eccentric. You think of him as a, a person of the first half of the 20th century. He was born in 1889 and died 1951. Okay. His family was a wealthy Viennese Jewish industrial family um, and very artistic as well. I think Brahms was a family friend, for example. Uh, so he grew up in quite a privileged um, uh, setting in, in that sort of middle European culture. Um, and he looked as if he was going to be either musical or something to do with, uh, with engineering or design. These seemed to be his early interests. He, he was actually at the, um, at the primary school he went to uh, in Linz in Austria. He was a fellow student of Adolf Hitler, which um, right. is something not everybody knows. Uh, there's no evidence that they liked each other particularly um, or that they didn't. Um, he then, but he then studied engineering and went off to England initially to be um, uh, uh, an aeronautical designer, but while he was there, he got more interested in the mathematics of what he was doing than in the engineering. Had he done a university degree in engineering? He'd done a degree in engineering mm. in Berlin. Right, that's right. Um, and while, once he got interested in the mathematics, he came into this into the ambit of Bertrand Russell at Cambridge, which was the, <coughs> the life changing thing for him. And there's a famous story about him first meeting um, uh, Russell and asking him. <coughs> That did he, Russell, think that Wittgenstein could actually be a philosopher because otherwise he would go back to being an aeronaut. Okay. Uh, and well, anyway... Um, Russell says yes. Yes, Russell said yes. And so he, he actually had already met Frege, Gottlob Frege, the, mm-hmm. the famous um, German uh, logician, and so he gradually became more and more interested in philosophy uh, and was invited by Russell to spend four or five terms at Cambridge in the years leading up to World War I. And then, of course, the war intervened. And he had a rather extraordinary war um, decorated for, for courage and valour. In the Austrian in, On the Austrian side in the war. Um, mm-hmm. That is fighting the Italians, mm-hmm. um, particularly. He was on the Eastern Front and then on, on the Italian Front. Okay. Uh, and um, during the war, he was also writing the first of his two great magnum opuses, Magna Opera, um, the Tractatus Logico Philosophicus, while he was, as it were, in battle. And then he felt after the war that he'd finished the book and he'd, his, his ambition was to solve philosophy by writing that book. So that was it.
0: Did he publish the book? Uh, yes, he did the book. And then stopped?
1: Um, uh, he, he, he didn't publish it immediately, but it was not long after. I think it was 1921 yeah. it was published, just, just after yeah. the war. But he stopped once the war was over. Actually, he, he, kept carried the, he was captured by the Italians at the end of the war and carried the manuscript of this famous book with him into captivity. And eventually it got out and he was, he was um, set free at the end of the war. Anyway, he then went off, uh, having decided he'd done philosophy and there was no more to do, he went off and became a schoolteacher in remote villages in the Austrian mountains. Uh, and he did that for years, for a long time. He completely left philosophy. Uh, many members of his family were depressives. Uh, and it seems highly likely that he suffered something like a nervous breakdown during those years. So having, um, having written this great book, he then retreated from the world uh, and only slowly came back um, uh, after five or six years in Austria, came back into the world. He was a gardener in a monastery for a while. He designed a big house, a townhouse for his sister. But then he met the Viennese circle of logicians like Schlick and Carnap and so on, and eventually gravitated back to Cambridge, where he presented the Tractatus, his famous book, as a PhD, um, which was all very funny, and, you know, he was kind of... His viva was rather a formality with... Uh, I think it was Russell and Moore who were his, who were his examiners. Anyway... So he's back in Cambridge he's and then back in stays Cambridge. There. Back in Cambridge, where he stayed through at least the first half of the 1930s. This was his most prolific period as a philosopher, went back mm-hmm. to to writing, um, but a different kind of writing after the break from... from um, uh, but not publishing. But not publishing. And he didn't, he didn't publish anything ever again. Uh, his other famous book, The Investigations, came out in, after he died in 1951, but he wrote. Uh, and most of what he did was subsequently published, but not by him. It, it was in the form of notes uh, and faithfully recorded very often by his little group of acolytes and disciples. Yeah. So those the thirties were a very productive time for him. Um, he he periodically again retreated. He had a hut in Norway that he went and worked in all by himself. He had a, a small house, I think, in Galway in the west of Ireland where he also retreated. So he kind of a hermit-like side to his personality. Um, and there's evidence that he agonised about what he should be doing and whether he was a good man, as much as he spent time actually writing philosophy. But the 30s was his was his big year, and then of course his big decade. And then at the end of the 30s came the Second War, and again he, he had a non-academic role. He was a medical orderly, I think, in London at Guy's Hospital for most of World War Two, uh, and then eventually um, was invited after the war was over back to Cambridge once again. However. He was offered he was offered uh, formal academic positions, and he described being to Russell. I think he described being uh, the life of a professor of philosophy as a living death. So he was not he was not he was not your model of a of, of, a, of a conventional academic, um, but he did go on writing uh, in the form of these these written manuscript uh, notes, mostly in German, I think English, towards the end of his life, and then he had a stint in. Um, uh, briefly in the United States, right at the end came back to um, to England with cancer in one thousand nine hundred and forty nine uh, continued to work for a couple more years and then um, by now the, the 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 book that was to become the investigations had been had been written but only existed in note form and he died in one thousand nine hundred and fifty
0: one julian okay we 're going to pay attention to wittgenstein 's originality what makes him different but before we do that um, I want to ask you if you can give us some sense of the state of philosophy that Wittgenstein came into and to which he started to contribute just some of the sort of leading headlines.
2: Sure. Yeah, I, I think that's especially important because he not only contributed to this area of philosophy, but he also came out of it. And a lot of his later philosophy can be read as a critique of this earlier philosophy. Is coming
0: out of a German tradition?
2: Uh, German and, and also uh, the tradition that he found at Cambridge with, with Bertrand Russell. Simon okay. has mentioned Gottlob Frege and also Bertrand Russell. And when we're thinking of these thinkers, we're thinking of logic. We're thinking particularly of logical positivism and logical atomism. Um, and some of the, the ideas that actually remained with Wittgenstein from this kind of thinking, I think throughout his whole um, life as a thinker, were firstly, what is the relationship between language and reality? This was a crucial question. And, and and the second one was to do with clarity. Um, the the uh, logicians of, of um, uh, Wittgenstein's time, Bertrand Russell and, and, and Frege, were very keen on achieving a degree of clarity. And I think this was very important for Wittgenstein throughout his career. Now, in terms of this question, what is the relationship between language and reality? Uh, people like Frege and, and, and Russell had a very referential view of the relationship between language and reality. Ultimately, every utterance that makes sense, every utterance that is meaningful, is meaningful because it proposes something about the world. It asserts something about the world. Ultimately, even the most complex of utterances can be boiled down to a proposition. Uh, For for someone like Frege, very frequently this, this proposition was assumed. This was an assumption built into the actual fabric of the utterance itself. Um, and Frege thought that this was the actual thing that was tacitly being, being proposed. And so people like Frege, people like Russell, had a very descriptive view of, of language. Language ultimately asserted or described something about the world. Now, the interesting thing, I think, for Wittgenstein, both, both the early Wittgenstein and the later Wittgenstein, was, well, if language describes something about the world, then how does it do this? And what uh, Frege, people like Frege and, and, and Russell would have would have said was there is a grammar or, or rather a logic inherent in language which directly correlates to the structure of reality. So even a, a very simple utterance like the cat is on the mat has a certain grammar, a certain logic to it. And that logic imbues reality itself, correlates with, with reality. Um, a lovely remark that Wittgenstein made about this way of thinking a little bit later was logic pervades the world. It's almost as if the logic in that sentence is, is everywhere in the world and, and, and pervades every object in the world. And so this was very much part of uh, Wittgenstein's early thinking and his intellectual upbringing.
0: This would be how most people think about language. I include. think
2: so. I think so. And 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 this is what makes I think Wittgenstein's later philosophy so appealing is that when he comes back to revise this way of thinking, he's not just talking about Frege and Russell. He's talking about lots of people who have never done philosophy mm. before, mm. and so his critique equally um, applies to us.
1: It might be worth just adding a small a small extra kind of historical note to that, which is that the the entire. Um, uh, language approach to philosophy that Wittgenstein was such a key part of, that represented by Russell and Frege and Moore as well, um, was itself a, a, a reaction uh, beginning really around the turn of the 19th into the 20th centuries against idealism. And, and the, right. the, the, the dominant mode of philosophy for, I'd say, close to 100 years or so since the Romantic period had been Hegelian and idealist, where philosophers were supposed to talk about things like being, with a capital B, mm-hmm. um, uh, um, something that transcends the world, grand metaphysical constructions. Uh, and, and in different ways, both on the continent and in the Anglo-American world, the whole linguistic movement was a reaction against that, basically a way of saying, let's get rid of all the vaporing and start talking clearly about ordinary life. Uh, So even though linguistic philosophy later became rather disconnected from ordinary life, the impulse was to get rid of something very wishy-washy and metaphysical. And and Saussure is a good example of a a slightly older contemporary in a different Mm -hmm. tradition who is also thinking about language as a way of getting away from, from metaphysics.
0: So you have to get the language sorted out get yeah, your that's head out right. of
1: the clouds. Well in a way it's an, it's an evolution of something that started oddly enough before the the idealistic movement uh, with Kant who said that that in the end uh, uh, knowledge has to do with the structures of the knowing the, the structures in the mind of the knowing person knowledge has or is very much to do with how we know. And the linguistic movement was also saying that's true. And a large part of how we know is how we speak about what we know, okay. and so the best way to understand the limits of what we can know is to understand what the limits of our language are. And what what did he think philosophy was for? Was for yeah, and I, know, and I know Julian's got a couple of thoughts about this too. But um, <clears throat> okay, in many, maybe one answer to that is to say, he thought his job as a philosopher was to clear up the mess that philosophy had already made. I want to interrupt and say sure. I, I
0: understand that and and who who could disagree this is a, a, a fine ambition. Mm. But having cleared up the mess, then what is left? Is he saying, well, you don't actually... Once you've cleared up the mess, there isn't really any philosophy left to do.
1: I think, you know, I think in the end he would have agreed. Oh. Um, he, he He says that philosophy is a bewitchment of our intelligence by means of language. And he saw his job as therapeutic. Uh, to to get rid of this, the, the bewitchment doesn't only happen because of other philosophers. He thinks we ourselves are misled by the way that we use language, we and we need to clean that up. Confused by by language, by the, language it, that by we the structure inherit. of language itself. Yes, exactly. Um, so he, he thought that uh, the the muddles that we get into by using language is, the, is that his job was to clear those up, uh, n- not to go beyond that. That in itself was a good enough job for philosophy to do. You had
2: Absolutely, and, 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 and to add to that, I, uh, as I mentioned very briefly early in relation to um, the logician, so Wittgenstein, I think, throughout his career really prized clarity, and I think what came with clarity for Wittgenstein was a degree of peace. And, and I think
1: um, putting that in a, in a context that we've referred to before, you have to understand how important he thought language was. Mm in order to get hold of why this is an important thing for philosophy to do. You were saying, once you've cleared up philosophy, what do you do then? Well, he would say that um, you can never stop in your life getting your language clearer or getting clearer about the kinds of messes that we get into with language or, best of all, realising to how great an extent language is a tool, an actual instrument, a thing that we use in our lives, not just a way of describing the world. Therefore... Uh, clearing it up is not something that you just get to the end of and then you go and live the rest of your life because you live the rest of your life in language. Mm. And so you never stop needing that kind of clarity about, about language. So who's going to take on the, the tract art at Simon? Unfortunately, <laughs> it, is, it is I, yes. <laughs> yeah, um, this is 1921 This is yeah, so. it published just after mm. the war, written okay. during World War I right. uh, and written very much in the tradition that Julian was mentioning of that, that first-generation fascination with, uh, with logic um, and with the philosophy of language, it is um, in some ways the inter- One interesting thing about the tractatus is its physical form. It's not like most philosophy books. It's very short, short, isn't it? It's only twenty thousand words long. Mm-hmm. It's arranged in a very striking, unusual way. It's arranged in numbered paragraphs and sub and numbered sub paragraphs. It's quite what's the word? Quite Delphic. Some of the things that are said are not obvious until you've really thought about them, uh, but they're all very tightly formally this locked together. This seems to be the style,
0: is it? Style. That, Absolutely, that he he, he makes a. I see. A statement of pronouncement. Yeah. But then it's up to you to figure
1: out where it came That's from where right. it's going. That's right. <clears throat> exactly. The central thesis of the Tractatus is that is what's called the picture theory of language. Yes. And very roughly speaking, what that says is that the world is a collection of facts on the one hand. And language is set over against the world like a ruler, like a measure against the thing that it's measuring. So there's a kind of analogue or correspondence, really, between the system of language and the system of the world. Right. And the job of language is... language is built of atomic, um, atomic... of names, which go together to make states of affairs. And on the other hand, the world is made of objects and the names and the objects roughly correspond to each other. So the more complicated the world gets, the more complicated the language gets in response. So it pictures... It so, the, stru- the logical structure of the world is pictured in the logical structure of
0: language. And language is the, the names of things.
1: Ultimately, it's the, the word, names the of word. things, although it, it's, it's difficult, and this is why I, I drew the short straw here, because you can never pin Wittgenstein down to saying exactly what a basic name is or exactly what the basic objects that it corresponds to are. So we won't go there. OK, let, let's not try and pin it no, down. But, but, I, will say, but I, will say, I will say in conclusion, the first yes. the first sentence of the whole book is, the world is everything that is the case. Yes. And the last sentence of the whole book is, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. <laughs> and the book is everything that happens in between <laughs> those two points.
0: Well, excellent line. <laughs> Julian, um, let's leave behind the Tractatus and and we're looking at sort of middle and later Wittgenstein and I'd like to ask you to tell us something about games games are very important they're very important,
2: yeah and um, well we can't leave the Tractatus completely behind because Mm -hmm. Wittgenstein very much has the Tractatus in mind as he's writing about games and so what Wittgenstein is trying to do when he talks about this idea of a language game is he's trying to revise, repudiate Um, provide an alternative understanding of what he had early regarded as a very referential relationship between language and reality. So, for instance, um, in the philosophical investigations where these issues arise, uh, he, he thinks about language and he says, well, there are some things that clearly are not names of anything. They don't seem to refer to any object in the world or any object in our mind. So if someone was drowning and they shout, help! Are they referring to a particular object? Well, well, clearly not. Well, what, what then are they doing? Um, and this is one of the motivating questions for, for the first several pages of the investigations. And one of the things that, that Wittgenstein is, is trying to do in these opening passages is he's trying to remind us that, that language is an activity. It's something that we all do pretty much all the time. And his use of the word games is, if you like, a, a, an ongoing reminder to consider language as an activity rather than, simply, rather than simply something which is imbued with this ideal logical structure. We need to continually remind ourselves that we're, 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 language is this, is this um, action, if you like. And so he coins this idea language games. And what language games does is it reminds us that language is always spoken from within a context – um, and this is exactly the thing that, that the logicians had forgotten. They had forgotten that language is cultural, it's social, it's political, it's, broadly speaking, contextual. Uh, and a game, this metaphor of a game is meant to remind us ex- of exactly that. So we, we've got to stop
0: thinking of language as a like a list of words in the dictionary yeah. corresponding to objects. So not, not, not labels, not, not and pictures. And we, we start way. thinking of it as something that we do so that for example, if I say to you, whatever, that's, that's not right. the name of anything. That's not the name of anything. It,
2: it's a kind of social behavior between us. It's a social behavior. It assumes a kind of relationship between yes. us. It's a, it's a social gesture. Um, and all of this talk about uh, games, which, which happens in the first 30 or so pages of the philosophical investigations, all leads up to, I suppose, the key utterance in the philosophical investigations, or, or at least the one that everyone remembers The meaning of a word is its use in a language. Mm. So it's how you use the word in a context. That's its meaning. Its meaning is not derived, uh, as it were, from from, uh, the the reality of objects or from any kind of logical structure. It, It comes from our use of the word. So in this sense, we're, as
0: it were, reinventing the meaning of a word every time we use it in a different context
2: to a certain degree yes and, 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 and to a logician that would be quite a fearful thought quite that, scary isn't it that makes language look utterly um, out of control and, and, and we can't have that but Wittgenstein says well to what extent would it make language out of control we are um, quite happily engaged in language on a daily basis and we don't seem to have much trouble so why, sh- why should that be scary A a
1: tiny example of the kind of thing that that Julian's getting at, um, which I find quite helpful, is he says, even if you just think about the number of different language games involved in the category that we call exclamations, which Mm -hmm. is a nice handy little grammatical category and logicians know what exclamations are and we teaching linguistics or something know what they are. But he says, just think about, for example, um, the following simple words with an exclamation mark at the end of them. Water. Water or away, or ow, or help, or fine, or no. Now, those are all exclamations, but they would all have their role, if you think about them for a minute, in completely different language games, completely different contexts. So if they were in the toolbox of your language, you'd see this row of this row of things that are all called exclamations, but they actually would, if you took them out of the toolbox, it would be like the difference between a screwdriver and a chisel. It has completely different function.
2: Think of the meaning of a word as all the different moves that it can do. Mm. That's its meaning. Okay. So a meaning is not an object. It, it's the totality <clears throat> of its moves in a language. He,
1: he does say somewhere, just consider the proceedings that we call games. It's another one of these things where he makes a list of things that we would think are all the same. He says, what about board games, card games, ball games, Olympic games? All of these things are called games, <clears throat> and, and and yet they're all completely different. So what is it that we mean by the word game? If you look at them all, quite hard to say. You couldn't find a rule which defined what a game was. The only way you could look at it was, he calls this, family resemblances. There are some sort of connection that we can feel or intuit between these different things, but we can't define exactly
2: what it is. And one of the problems that philosophy gets us into is it has us racking our brains, what is the universal similarity between all of these uses of the word. Mm. And when we can't find it, we become distressed.
0: Mm. Or obsessed. (laughs) Or obsessed. What he's saying is chill out, because you're never going to find it. That's right. But you can still make the moves. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Um, In my introduction, I quoted, I love this sentence, if a lion could talk, we could not understand him. Um, Let me work this out. This is because if a lion okay, could talk, okay. and, and, think, and he, yeah, yeah. the lion says certain words. We can look those words up in the dictionary, but this will not help us to know what game because, the lion is involved because in. Because
1: the language that the lion would speak is part of the instrument, the instruments that it uses yeah. in its life, yeah. and yeah. and a, li- a lion's life is so different from our life that all the other things that go with that instrument, which are reflected in the instrument, wouldn't make no sense to us at all. So th- therefore, we couldn't. We couldn't yeah. There you go. Excellent. I came across a quotation from um, the the famous Terry Eagleton the other day who said that uh, uh, Wittgenstein is the philosopher of poets uh, and composers. Mm. So in other words, there's something in the form of what he writes that appeals to artists as much as it does to philosophers. um, That when they did... um, uh, a, a centenary retrospective of his work. So I suppose that would have been in 1989. Um, they they actually they actually this was in Vienna. They actually found a very large number of painters and musicians who explicitly said that they were influenced by his work. And so they showed the they showed the paintings and and, and played the music. So he seems to have always to have appealed to um, to humanities people, but literature, particularly. I mean, Julian can add to this. Uh,
2: well, uh, a, a very specific thing uh, and a general thing. The general thing first. Well, I mean, Wittgenstein is, was so sensitive to the, the nuances in language and the subtle differences in, in, in the way we use words. And I think reading Wittgenstein as a student of literature, as a reader of literature, really hones your skill in that area. A, a, a more specific interest uh, are Wittgenstein's uh, very enigmatic remarks on Shakespeare. Um, Wittgenstein did not seem to like Shakespeare all that much, (laughs) and I think smart people who don't like Shakespeare are are really quite interesting. And it's interesting, uh, Douglas, that you you, um, gave us that quotation, if a lion could talk, we could not understand him. Wittgenstein said something quite similar about Shakespeare. Uh, Words to the effect, Simon, help me out. It's something like, um, I do not think a poet could say, I sing as the bird sings, Mm -hmm. but perhaps Shakespeare could have said it of himself. So, there, there, there's something about Shakespeare that's so otherworldly, like the lion. Uh, and he speaks this language which we recognize as language, but we just don't know what it means. Yeah, yeah he
1: says Shakespeare he would think of as a creator of language rather than a poet. Rather than a yeah, poet. Very good. Very, very. I mean, but, but if you think about poetry as very, very complex language games, it's obvious that the relevance that Wittgenstein has to any thinking about literature, really.
0: Okay, we have gobbled up all our time. Simon Haynes, Julian Lamb, thank you both very much. We have to stop there by saying whereof we cannot speak, <laughs> we must remain silent. Absolutely. Thank you for listening. Excellent.